0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, um, welcome, Gail. This is our new question and answer recording, uh, taking a- a questions from members from the IMC Worldwide um, Online Community, and um, it's been a while since we've been doing this. Um, so I'm really looking forward to your answers.
1: Great, Marguerite. Great to see you again. And, and I enjoy these kinds of questions. So please, I mean, if okay. you would read them, I would be happy to try to answer.
0: Okay, so the first question is from Oliver in Manchester in the UK. And um, his question is, On the cushion, I have generally tried using mindfulness of the body and breathing. Usually there's quite a lot of tension and discomfort in the body and the breathing often feels cramped, particularly in the chest and back area around the heart, where it feels as if there is some kind of blockage. Initially, I only really noticed this during formal practice, but now I notice it during daily life as well. Mindfulness has become something I need to get right, and as a result, when I try to arouse mindfulness in daily life, it is conjoined with a sense of pressure.
1: So um, I think it's very important to see that this is going on part of the function of mindfulness practices show us what we're doing. And uh, one of the things we can see is <clears throat> there can be a lot of tension that comes with how we live our lives. In this situation, I can imagine two reasons why there might be tension. They might be related. Uh, one has to do with uh, how a person is practicing mindfulness. Uh, it could be doing with striving, expectations, a strong sense of having needing to be right, um, <clears throat> that uh, just makes a person more tense, contracted, worried, stressed out about doing it. The other is that it could be that the mindfulness is revealing that that's a general attitude that one has most of one's life, that there's, one carries a lot of tension about how one lives one's life, a lot of pressure, <clears throat> and perhaps it's gotten so habituated that the person doesn't realize it until they start to slow down and are mindful and see it. And um, so this is all good to see, and it's not a problem, it's not a mistake that this is happening. Um, But now is to take this information and try to understand what is a wise thing to do, what's next, what's useful. And uh, the easy thing to say is that it's useful to relax, to try to be as relaxed as possible. But um, it's easier said than done, and in terms of mindfulness practice, it might be useful to do uh, just, a, um, just a little bit of mindfulness at a time, just a few minutes, and to focus on two things uh, being relaxed and trying to understand what goes on when you start getting tense. But do it in all small dosages so you begin understanding better what's going on. Uh, and then, as you understand better what's going on, maybe you can make small course corrections. Uh, you can correct yourself from trying too much, you can be more relaxed. Um, and um, there's no need to, when you do mindfulness meditation to have any concern with the right or wrong, doing it right or doing it wrong you can just um, it just uh, be relaxed about how you are and get to know it, study it, understand what's happening and uh, you do that I think um, you'll find your way
0: Thank you Gail um, the next question is um, actually um very much in line with his previous question and it's from uh, vv in bangalore india his question is i often get caught in doubts and concerns regarding accuracy correctness of my practice meaning is my understanding of the instructions accurate without error is my implementing some aspect of instruction accurate such as is my naming, labeling of emotion, or its associated motivation, accurate, etc. I find this a hindrance in the practice. Can you please address the attitude to have towards correctness in the context of understanding and implementing any Buddhist practice instructions? In that context, can you also address what is the consequence of incorrectness?
1: Well, I don't think I'm qualified to answer the question of any Buddhist practice instructions. But um, in terms of the uh, practices that we do, um, I think the guideline, a very important principle that guides how we do the practice is the principle that uh, we're trying to practice in such a way that we suffer less. And so the purpose of any technique, any approach or instructions for practice is to help us suffer less. But the practice itself doesn't necessarily do it. It's how the feedback loop, how we understand what we're doing and look at it. And we have to, through trial and error, understand what what are the things we can do that reduces our suffering, that makes us lighter, more peaceful, that helps us become clearer in our awareness. And so the uh, techniques of practice that uh, we offer are in the service of that. And so uh, if the practice doesn't help, you become freer of suffering. Maybe you need to make an adjustment or find another one to do. Um, or perhaps the particular approach that you have, focusing on accuracy and inaccuracy, correct? And that, that's not a useful attitude to have in terms of becoming freer, becoming, uh, having less suffering. And rather than approaching it from correct and incorrect, uh, it might be more useful to approach the practices, in, the practice instructions from the point of view of what's helpful and not helpful. How do we do them so they're helpful? Which instructions are helpful for us? And then we learn from how it goes. Uh, we learn, is this helping me? Is this not helping me? Um, I, do, I know very well that a person can tie themselves in knots by trying to do a practice technique correctly. Um, I think probably it's better not to be too correct. It might be better to be a little bit incorrect about how you do it <clears throat> and have the practice unfold nicely than it is to try to be perfectly correct and be tense and then the path doesn't open up. So um, I'd encourage you to be relaxed, take your time and, um, and hold whatever techniques you're doing very lightly. The point of the technique is to support our ability to be aware.
0: Thank you. Next question from Rian in Truro, Argentina. I have been meditating for six months now using this the website of IMC and feel that it is being very beneficial. I attended a local group that was in the UK and was based around the Geshe-Kerzan Gyatso meditation handbook. I did not feel comfortable performing these types of meditations as I was unsure of my belief in lower rebirth, etc. And the meditations seemed to be based a lot around fear. I'm trying to ascertain the differences between the meditation teaching styles of this site IMC and the Geshe style.
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. And uh, uh, I don't know Geshe Yatsu. I don't know the handbook on meditation, so I'm not really, I don't know know how to answer the question except based on what is in your question. Um, If his meditation practices are based on uh, beliefs in uh, rebirth and and concern with um, or having fear about not being born in hell realms or lower rebirth, then that itself is a big difference between what we do here at IMC. Uh, We don't base our practice on any kind of belief of uh, uh, past and future lives and rebirth, hells and heavens. Um, It's not that we are against those beliefs that occur in Buddhism, but we don't uh, find much need or usefulness for those beliefs. And um, find that we can teach, we can practice meditation and the Buddhist path all the way to liberation uh, without recourse to ideas of rebirth. And um, so we tend to be a little much more empirical, focusing on what we can see and hear and taste here and now in this life. And um, we find that that's all we need to do.
0: Thank you. Next question from Vivi in Bangalore again. At many places in your mindfulness instructions and Q&A, you de-emphasize certain things, such as the need to keep the eyes closed or sitting versus standing during meditation, way of labeling things, etc. This seems to give an impression that one can customize certain aspects of the details of a practice. Can you please explain the boundaries of such customization? What sort of customization keeps it still in the realm of mindfulness practice? For instance, in one of the Q&A, you answer that having music in the background for meditation is not a useful customization for mindfulness.
1: Thank you for the question. And um, perhaps the word, you're, the word customization, as you're using, is similar to the Buddhist idea of um, upaya kusala, kusala upaya, skillful means and um, we have to find out what the skillful means are what skillful methods and approaches are that support us in the path of freedom help us to suffer less find peace find compassion and so it's a a, partly a process of trial and error to see uh, what works for us what what doesn't work and uh, there's a lot of different uh, practices in buddhism ways of doing practice and so, and, and there's also many different kinds of people with different uh, uh, personal tendencies and uh, abilities and different things. And so uh, we need to customize a little bit um, the practice to ourselves. Someone who can't sit on the floor, it's uh, customized, it's more skillful to sit in the chair. Um, someone, some people have trouble with the eyes closed, so there's no problem with keeping the eyes open. So we have to find that. But it's a very good question, what are the boundaries of such customization? Um, One of the boundaries is that it's possible that every time there's a challenge or difficulty in meditation, the person concludes that they're doing the wrong practice and they change and do a different practice. And so they never really uh, settle down into what's happening. They never really um, develop a particular practice because they're avoiding the difficulties. Um, There is a certain uh, importance of discipline of doing your best to choose a good practice that you think suits, your, suits who you are, and then um, to try it for a while, even when it gets challenging and difficult, to see what you can learn, see if you can work through some of the difficulties to the other side. There's no spiritual practice, no Buddhist practice, that uh, doesn't come with being challenged in some way. If you're not challenged by your practice, don't find difficulty in doing it sooner or later, it's probably not going to be worth very much for you. So, um, so, you have, so the, the don't necessarily give up every time it's a little difficult. Some discipline is needed, some uh, sticking to it, uh, but within reason. So after a while you can evaluate on your own or perhaps with the help of a teacher, is this really working or should I adjust what I'm doing uh, further?
0: Thank you. Um, next question is from Jen in Indianapolis. She wants to know if there's a study, talk, resource on the Satipatthana Sutta for elementary school children. She wants to know how she can share the brilliance and peace of your talks with her daughter. Mm.
1: Well, the last question, how to share the peace of my talks with your daughter, I'm I'm very glad that you experience it that way. And um, I believe that with young children, uh, that... The best way to share it is by how a parent is, not what a parent does. So if a parent practices mindfulness or meditation, if the parent parent has learned how to be more at ease and less stressed, less anxious, um, that's a powerful lesson for children. They learn by example. So I think for the parent, the practice is the biggest thing. And to demonstrate the practice of mindfulness to the kids... Uh, in terms of resources, uh, using the Satipatthana Sutta, teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Discourse on Mindfulness, um, uh, there's a number number of resources for teaching it to school children. Probably the best place to go is on the website for uh, an organization called Mindful Schools, mindfulschool.org. Uh, they're in Oakland, California, and they've now taught uh, some 20,000 uh, elementary school children uh, mindfulness, the great success, very meaningful. With And uh, if you go on their website, I think you uh, learn more about what they do and learn about the resources that uh, they link you to. So mindfulschools.org.
0: Thanks. Next question from Peter, in Lancashire, UK. I'm struggling with my belief in a creator God, but still believe that there is something special going on Possibly something that has to remain a mystery to this simple human form. I want to embrace the Dharma without the guilt and confusion I now feel. The guilt also stems from the simple fact but I feel a fool in hanging on to my Catholic guilt-based belief system. I hang back from making the leap of faith away from what faith I have left towards the Dharma.
1: Yes, I can well understand that kind of challenge. Uh, there can be a very deep connection, sometimes a heart connection, to a religion of one's birth that uh, might still feel meaningful or might feel, uh, might feel the emotional connection might uh, keep us connected to it long after we don't really feel much resonance with the teachings that are there. Um, but I can reassure you that uh, the Buddhism and the Buddhist practices uh, do not, uh, are not in opposition to any belief in um, a creator God or gods or Catholicism. I think from a Buddhist point of view, it's quite fine to um, believe in God, a creator God, and continue to practice, um, uh, do the Buddhist practice. The Buddhist practice works independent of such beliefs. Um, And uh, I think if you you can, uh, so by all means, continue to uh, believe in something special going on, some creation, creator, and, um, and maybe then you won't feel so much guilt uh, for being involved in Buddhism. I know that there are some people who come from uh, religions where the idea is you're supposed to believe in one religion, one religion only, and then it can be difficult to be involved in Buddhism if it's seen as a religion um, uh, in competition with the, the first religion. But maybe, maybe you don't have to look at Buddhism as a religion in the same way as Catholicism is. Uh, it's more of a way of practice. It's more of an approach of uh, instructions for how to live a free, liberated life. And, um, and it might help you become a better Catholic because you'll learn how to hold Catholic beliefs without clinging to them, without them suffering because of it. I know there are a number of people who uh, have learned to feel a lot of guilt because of uh, certain religious beliefs. And perhaps uh, mindfulness practice, Buddhist practice, can teach you how to hold the beliefs without needing to feel any guilt about
0: them. Thank you. Next two questions are from Cynthia in Tucson, Arizona. First question. I have spent a lot of this summer idle with just a few things to do. I have done some meditating as far as I am able. I'm finding that I'm becoming more dissatisfied, emotional, and even tearful. In the past, I would have said it's because I don't have the distraction of work. Now after listening to all the Dharma talks, I begin to wonder if I should have a different attitude toward these feelings. I would have dismissed them before, but now I wonder what they mean. Perhaps rather than distract myself, I need more time alone for reflection, perhaps a retreat.
1: Yes, Cynthia, this is um, very touching to read your, your, what you're considering, what's happening to you. And uh, yes, it can happen that as a person becomes more mindful, practices meditation, that there can be uh, a big backlog of unresolved uh, emotions, feelings, memories that uh, will come to the surface. And I've known people who have um, uh, needed to go through a period of time of releasing these things, letting these things come to the surface I've known people who've spent um, needed to spend a, f- a fair amount of time crying, releasing the backlog of tears that are there. Uh, and that's been a healthy process. So um, if this is what is a result of uh, meditating, as these feelings are coming to the surface, I would take it as a good sign. And uh, as you said, um, spend some time maybe alone reflecting on them, perhaps going on a retreat. But you don't have to do it alone. It could also be helpful, maybe, to have a friend to talk to, who can offer you some support as you go through this, and or perhaps a therapist or a, 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 some other kind of teacher, like a Buddhist teacher. Um, and um, you know, you don't have to do it alone. This process.
0: Next question from Cynthia: If meditation is a time when we keep coming back to the breath and staying with the breath. Then one is the time for the deep introspection we need to do to find out what is our true aspiration? How do the two work together? What is the synergy? Would you say set away time to meditate and another time to introspect?
1: Yes, I think that's probably the best thing to do. Uh, many people have such a strong habit of thinking that if we bring thinking into meditation, like intros- introspective thinking, it continues to develop a habit of thinking even more, whereas meditation works best if we kind of put aside discursive thinking. So I would uh, set it have two different times. They could be closely connected. There could be a period of meditation, and then um, end the meditation, and then clearly and intentionally spend time uh, reflecting and, about intentions and meanings and things that are important for you. I think a reflective life, is a life that can be much more deep and, uh, and uh, meaningful. Um, so I, I hope that people spend time being introspective to certain degrees, um, but not to confuse it with what mindfulness is, what meditation is.
0: Next question from Thiago in Cannes, France. Yesterday I was with my three-year-old daughter, and I realized that she's always wanting things, like us in the adulthood. So, we are all born with this feeling of wanting material things. My question is, why are we born like this?
1: Yeah, I don't know why we're born like this. Uh, it's interesting that in the traditional Buddhist teachings, they say that um, desires have no beginning. Uh, meaning there's no, you can't really answer the question why. They just kind of uh, always there. Um, but you know, another, from other point of view, um, having desires is for material things. Um, you know, to, within reason is a very important thing for children to develop and to have. Uh, without it, um, how are they going to find a, a life for themselves and security and well-being for themselves and the world around them? So, to some, some degree, it's what's needed. Uh, but then, as we grow up, we get to look at our desires and look at our motivations and begin separating out those desires and motivations that involve suffering, that bring us suffering, and those that uh, come from wisdom and understanding. And so it isn't that we're supposed to not have any desires at all in Buddhism, but rather uh, we can, uh, in a sense, grow up so that our desires become more and more mature, more and more uh, peace-producing for ourselves and for everyone else.
0: And this is from Michael in La Mesa, California. When we chant, why is it that we chant in Pali? Is there something in the Buddhist teachings that prohibits chanting in a country's main language? In a local Buddhist sitting I attended, we first chanted in Pali, then we repeated in English. This got me wondering why we chant in Pali at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no need to chant in Pali the uh, uh, Buddha was asked at uh, some point by people if they could um, um, record and, and uh, preserve his teachings in uh, the Sanskrit of the time, the kind of the book language, the, the church Latin of ancient India. And he prohibited it, but and he said it's, uh, he, he allowed people to uh, record the teachings in the local idiom, in the local language that people speak. Um, and in fact, there are people who chant uh, the ancient uh, chants in English translations. The monks at Amaravati and Abhayagiri monasteries, Amaravati is in England, Abhayagiri is in, in California. Uh, um, they've they've uh, translated uh, these ancient chants into English and, and uh, put them to kind of Gregorian style chanting. It's quite beautiful to listen to, all in English. It's very meaningful to listen to them in English, as you understand the meaning of it all. Uh, some people chant in Pali, as uh, I do, uh, periodically, uh, primarily because of a, a kind of emotional connection to it. Uh, it makes, you know. I, I heard it. I heard the chanting in Pali when I was in Asia. Uh, it was me, you know. I associate uh, my time in monasteries in Asia with a very significant time in my life. There's a certain kind of feeling of gratitude, appreciation. Um, a sense of connection to the ancient tradition and to even the Buddha that I get when I chant it in Pali—the language is probably closest to what the Buddha spoke. So there's a kind of emotional connection, which is nice for me and supportive of me. Um, and there's no need to do it, only if you—if if it's meaningful for you.
0: And this is our last question from Ramona in Charlottesville, Virginia. I live in a wooded area with many deer, and hence ticks are prevalent, especially in the summertime. Lyme disease is a real issue. Recently, I found a couple ticks embedded in me and pulled them off with tweezers. Doing so killed the ticks. Leaving them embedded is just not an option. I tried to avoid the ticks, but it is not always possible. Would you please speak to this situation? and how one would be able to follow the precept given the situation described?
1: Well, I appreciate this kind of question a lot. Um, I, I wish that more people would be concerned about um, the precept of not killing and how to live it. Um, if we if we had much more care and consideration around this precept, I think we'd have a much better place world to live in. Um, at the same time, I don't really... I prefer not to give people a clear answer of what to do or not to do and to leave situations like this to uh, let people decide for themselves. But in considering it carefully, um, certainly to do whatever you can to try to avoid um, uh, getting bitten by a tick. And so there's a lot of things to be done. And also perhaps to, uh, after being in the woods, and the, uh, to um, immediately do a search of the body uh, before the ticks have a chance to bite in, maybe they're just walking around. I've done that and seen a tick walked on me, and very carefully took it outside, um, and uh, rather than killing it. And um, and then if it's embedded deep inside of you, and there's a high chance for Lyme disease, then um, you have to weigh the the kind of cost benefits of the life of the of the tick and perhaps your own life, perhaps your own uh, sense of well-being. And if I was in those shoes, um, I probably would choose to pull the tick out, um, thinking that uh, the consequences are a lot worse for the world, for me, um, to, you know, get Lyme disease. Um, But that's an individual... I like to think of this as an individual question uh, answered individually by people. And if some people feel that they can't kill anything whatsoever and let the, the tick continue with its bite, then um, then uh, you could see, patiently wait until it drops itself out and then perhaps go get a Lyme test. And then if you need to, you can take some antibiotics. And if you take them right away, I hear that the, the antibiotics for Lyme disease works very well.
0: Well, thank you, Gil. And um, before we end, I just wanted to ask you if you could give us an update about the retreat center. Oh. And
1: so, we have this uh, wonderful retreat center now nearby called the Insight Retreat Center. And we've spent uh, the last um, year and a half, I guess, involved in renovating it from a nursing home to a retreat center. And we finally opened um, in October this year, 2012. And we've we've offered two retreats there. And the retreat center works, it's a beautiful place. It surprises me what a nice uh, place it is for doing retreats. I mean, I thought it would be, otherwise we wouldn't have done it, but it's much nicer than I expected. And um, we have a wonderful uh, group of people coming, a lot of people volunteering. I like to think of it as a um, um, community-supported retreat center. We have no staff, it's all run by volunteers. The people who come on retreat support the running of the retreat. And there's a very strong sense of community that's uh, developing in what we're doing that's uh, very meaningful for us as a context for doing retreat practice. So it's been um, a delight to be involved, and I look forward to uh, that to uh, welcoming many of you who might be interested in coming to do a retreat.
0: Thank you, Gil. Thank you. It's a nice way to end this mm-hmm. session.
1: Thanks. Great. Thank you, Marguerite. Bye-bye.